0: Welcome to Cinema Talk, the official podcast of the UW Cinematheque. In Madison, Wisconsin, I'm Jim Healy, Director of Programming for the Cinematheque. Beginning October 8, for a limited time, the Cinematheque continues its series of free movies to watch at home with two feature-length documentaries that were both originally selected to screen at the canceled 2020 Wisconsin Film Festival. Seen together, both movies offer a tribute to Cinema 5, a pioneering distributor of American independent and international films. First, the new documentary Searching for Mr. Rugoff offers a portrait of the influential Donald Rugoff, who started in the business as a New York theater chain owner and later founded his own distribution company, Cinema 5. With a gruff and sometimes downright impossible personality, Rugoff kicked art films into the mainstream with outrageous marketing schemes and pure bluster. Some of his most successful releases included Costa Garris' Z, Lena Wertmuller's Swept Away, and Seven Beauties, Monty Python on the Holy Grail, Robert Downey's Putney Swope, and the legendary Rolling Stones documentary Gimme Shelter. His impact on the art film business is undeniable. Yet, mysteriously, Rugoff has become a virtually forgotten figure. In Searching for Mr. Rugoff, director and one-time Cinema 5 staff member Ira Deutschman sets out to find the truth about the man who had such a major impact on his life, and he uncovers some surprising and poignant truths. As a bonus supplement to our virtual screening of Searching for Mr. Rugoff, the Cinematheque is also offering the chance to see one of Cinema 5's most successful and critically celebrated releases, the legendary rockumentary Gimme Shelter. In late 1969, at the peak of their popularity, the Rolling Stones agreed to appear at a festival rock concert at the Altamont Speedway in Northern California. This ultimately disastrous event, ending in mayhem and murder, has come to be considered by many as the symbolic nail in the coffin of the 1960s. Interviewed after Altamont and captured at other venues on their tour, Mick Jagger and the Stones are spellbinding subjects and stage presences. They perform classics like Sympathy for the Devil, Jumping Jack Flash, and Under My Thumb. Originally released by Cinema 5 in a version cut to earn a PG rating, Gimme Shelter can now be seen uncensored in a new restoration that marks the 50th anniversary of the original release. Beginning October 8th, the Cinematheque has a limited number of opportunities to view both Searching for Mr. Rugoff and Gimme Shelter at Home for free. To receive access, send an email to infocinema.wisc.edu, that's info at cinema.wisc.edu, and simply include the word Rugoff, that's R U G O F F, in the subject line. On this episode of Cinema Talk, our guest is Ira Deutschman, director of Searching for Mr. Rugoff, and himself an important and influential figure in independent releasing. Since 1975, he's worked on more than 150 films, including some of the most successful independent films of all time. He's one of the founders of Cinecom and later created Fine Line Features. He was also a co founder of Emerging Pictures, the first digital projection network in the United States, and a pioneer in delivering live cultural events into the movie theaters. Among the more than 60 films he worked on were Merchant Ivory's A Room with a View, Jonathan Demi's Stop Making Sense, John Sayles' The Brother from Another Planet, Gregory Navas' El Norte, Jane Campion's An Angel at My Table, Gus Van Zant's My Own Private Idaho, Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth, Robert Altman's The Player, and Shortcuts, Mike Lee's Naked, and the award-winning documentary Hoop Dreams. Deutschman has also served as producer and executive producer on several independent movies, including works by such celebrated filmmakers as Jonathan Demme, Gary Sinise, Paul Bartel, Maddie Rich, Maggie Greenwald, Wayne Wang, and Alan Rudolph. Searching for Mr. Rugoff is his featured directorial debut. Here now is my conversation with Ira Deutschman. Ira Deutschman, welcome to Cinema Talk. It's good to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, In your experience, the... uh, in the independent distribution business is it more dominated by leaders like rugoff who might have good taste and occasional good business sense but who are just as likely uh, to behave personally like like ogres or is there, are there more kind people and and
1: uh, more balanced personalities i th- i think that just like any other business there are um, there are assholes and there are good people. I think that unfortunately, and, and you see this, you know, in in a, in a lot of ways in our current zeitgeist, it's the assholes who demand attention, and as a result, they you know they they kind of dominate the conversation. And behind the scenes, there's plenty of people who really, um, you know, in spite of what you've heard, <laughs> who who actually want to do the right thing and who are actually decent people. Um, I used to get people saying to me, um, you know, there, there was a, a, fr- a friend slash co-producer of mine that I worked with a number of years ago who every time he introduced me to somebody would say, I'd like to introduce you to my friend and co-producer, Ira Deutschman. He's, he's one of the few good guys in the film business. And, and I had to keep pointing out to him that there were plenty of good people. I, I have lots of friends who, um, you know, are, have always fought the good fight. Uh, and, um, you know, and I mean that in a good way. You, know, it's, uh, you don't have to be an asshole to be successful, although I think in some areas it probably helps. Right. Yeah, you, make, you
0: make the connections in the film um, between the, some of the people who uh, come into the independent film world later, like specifically Harvey Weinstein. I wanted to ask you something about um, Don Rugoff's tastes. Uh, which you talk about a, a little bit in the film, and I wonder if um, he had what you, f- what you felt were really passionate tastes about, about movies, or were they just opinions about the movies based on his instincts about what he perceived as uh, taking advantage of a trend, uh, tr- the track records of the artists involved, uh, the, you know, the Monty Python troupe, for example, was it, was he, you know, did he really like the film or did he fall asleep while watching it and just knew that the, the cult for the TV show
1: was, was building in, in the U S. Um, I think it's a combination of the two. I, you know, sometimes I wonder, I wonder this about my own taste and the way that I've gotten involved with films over the years as well. Um, sometimes when you, when something really connects with you, the, the tendency is to sometimes put your um, your, your wisdom on hold because you've fallen in love, you know what I mean? And I and I, I, I sometimes talk about how I've done my best work on films that I wasn't crazy about because you're able to be um, so much more clear-eyed about what the pros and the cons are and what needs to be done. And, you know, your cynicism actually works to your benefit in terms of coming up with, with um, you know, Press angles and you know ways of marketing the film, etc. So I think I think Rukov worked a little bit like that too. He um, he did fall in love with movies. He did um, have taste, but they tended those films tended not to be the ones necessarily that that worked um, commercially. They may have worked you know in critically or whatever. And certainly looking back at that library of films, you know it, it was. A pretty amazing um, uh, you know collection of movies in that catalog that you know really was about partially at least about his taste but i think that the instincts that he had that i think made him extraordinary were more on the marketing end where he would see a movie and be able to identify an angle that you know it's like oh i i know how i can get people to come see this or i know how to exploit this And, you know, the combination of the two when it happens, which is rare, that's that's really powerful. But um, but I I do think that there's so many examples. Putney Swope was an example. The Monty Python movie was an example of movies where, you know, he he didn't necessarily even understand what was good about them. But what he saw was that there was something there that was marketable. Right. You make the suggestion that he perhaps was more passionate personally
0: about documentaries than he was about narrative films. Do you think that was the case? That's what his
1: son told me. I, I didn't um, necessarily witness that firsthand, but he certainly was among the few, um, uh, you know, sort of commercially oriented theatrical distributors in those days that was actually putting out documentaries into mainstream movie theaters. There weren't, weren't a whole lot of companies doing that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that, that would be an insight that I gained from interviewing his son. Uh, but I wouldn't have necessarily not, not. I wouldn't have necessarily thought of that at that time when I was working with him. I had the uh,
0: great pleasure of hearing you deliver a, a closing uh, keynote address of the Art House Convergence. I think that was in 2014, and you told uh, uh, some stories about the campaigns that you actually worked on for Cinema Five. Uh, can you tell us? Um, some of those, some of those campaigns that you worked on, maybe one or two that, uh, where you were, where you've came up with specific marketing
1: targets and and strategies? Um, uh, boy, that's a, that's a good question. You're talking about something that happened so long ago, but, um, the movie Outrageous was an example. Uh, you know, most people these days have not heard of that film. It was a Canadian film that was way ahead of its time, a drama about, um, a, a, a gay guy who, performed in drag um, in nightclubs in Toronto. Uh, this was in the you know, mid 70s. And um, uh, the, the, the whole idea behind that campaign, which is something that I absorbed as a lesson that I used many, many other times in my career, was that you know, when you have something that is, um, if, if you were to say out loud to people, this is what the movie's about, they wouldn't necessarily line up to go to see it. But if you make it look alluring in a kind of mysterious way and let people know that it's something different or special without giving away the details, then it makes people curious to want to see it. And so the whole campaign um, for Outrageous took advantage of the name of the movie, which was Outrageous with an exclamation point. And the graphical treatment of it was that there were no photographs of anybody who was in the movie. It was just pure graphic. Um, and, and so that's that's an example of something like that. Um, you know, the, the Harlan County, USA, which was Barbara Koppel's first film, that was a movie that we handled at Cinema 5. And um, and that was a film that, uh, uh, you know, I, the, the big lesson there is avoid the D word. Don't talk about the word documentary, uh, you know, get talk about it in almost fictional terms, because it's a story about these people who were you know, dealing with, with a big issue in their lives and trying to survive. And if you can describe it in those kind of terms, it sounds like a fiction film, which then makes it more appealing to people. Um, and they're not upset or disappointed when they find out it's a documentary. By the way, they're gonna know it's a documentary. You're not, you're not gonna hide it. It's more that you're just not emphasizing it. So, you know, I found myself many, many years later working on the, the campaign for Hoop Dreams, and using almost exactly that same strategy. So, so you know, those are those are a couple of examples. Did you find uh, when you were working
0: on your campaigns, and I imagine when you were doing it, it was for the first cities they would open in, so coastal, you know, New York, Los Angeles, did you find that as these films made their way across the country that other exhibitors or... Uh, I guess I guess advertisers, anybody who would have a stake in the release of these films, came up with or or were inspired by campaigns of their own to bring local and, and regional audiences who might have a different
1: reaction to the film uh, into theaters. You know, there's very little of that that goes on, actually. Uh, I mean, I really, off the top of my head, I really can't even think of an example because the counter argument to that is that the advertising that you do in the coastal cities actually does impact the the rest of the country to the extent that that people are paying attention who are interested in movies to ads in the new york times or in the new yorker or you know whatever um and that when you change the the campaign or the artwork for a film what you're doing in effect is you're throwing away all the money you've already spent because you've established that logo or that art as being a kind of symbol of the movie. And in the old days, when films used to play for, you know, months and months and months in the same theater, the establishing that art and knowing that as it got smaller and smaller and smaller, that um, people could recognize it, that was a a huge um, selling point in terms of, uh, you know, keeping a campaign consistent. Uh, You know, there was a a movie I worked on in later years uh, called Stop Making Sense, you know, the Talking Heads concert film. And um, the logo for that movie was so distinctive that we reached the point where ads could literally be one inch by one inch in the newspaper and people would still be able to recognize it. Um, and and that, that's the holy grail. That's what you want is to be able to establish it like a brand so that even the tiniest little ad people will be able to, to you know, catch on immediately to what you're selling. And, and so it's a good argument not to change the campaign as you go around regionally.
0: And that ad for Stop Making Sense, was it the um, font of the letters or was it the, uh, the image of David Burns? I guess it's from the neck down, right? It's yeah. David Byrne in the suit,
1: right? Yeah. Well, in the small ads, it was just the letters, but the letters were what was incredibly distinctive. Sure.
0: It was uh, Pablo Ferro, I think, right? So uh, I remember 1978, my neighborhood suburban theater in the northwest suburbs of Chicago played Monty Python's Jabberwocky, which, as you point out in the film, uh, (laughs) forced the, the Monty Pythons to do a cease and desist on Cinema 5. Um, but that was, uh, that was Don Rugoff's
1: idea, I take it. Yeah, that was out of desperation because the movie was not getting a great response, uh, both critically and as well as audience-wise at the time. And he couldn't convince uh, Terry Gilliam to make any changes in the film. Not that it would have necessarily helped anything, but um, uh, so, so yeah, he just decided to go for broke by using the Monty Python name to uh, make it look like it was a sequel to Holy Grail knowing that 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 he was going to end up getting stopped from doing it. Um, And uh, sure enough, that's exactly what happened.
0: And this is something that happens. uh, You suggest that that uh, you you said that Rugoff suggested that Gilliam edit the film or make some changes to the film. And this is something that happens with these uh, larger than life mavens. Sometimes they become, you know, filmmakers themselves or at least in their heads. They are and they want to edit and change the films. Um, I, I don't think you mentioned in the movie, but one of the films that went out in a different version in the U.S. was The Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm-hmm. Um, was that Rugof's, uh instigation to
1: have the film cut for
0: yes uh, American I, release?
1: absolutely. I mean, it's, a, it's a, a fascinating story. And what's interesting is that the, the way you just framed the question, um, Rugoff actually didn't do that very often. I mean, Man Who Fell to Earth was one of the few maybe the only time that he actually meddled with a movie. Whereas uh, with Jabberwocky, all he did was bring it up to Terry Gilliam and, and Terry just said, forget it. And then he backed off um, and then did the underhanded thing with the marketing. Um, I, the, other, the only other time I'm aware of where Rugoff got involved with um, recutting a film was Scenes from a Marriage, which um, was a six hour uh, TV miniseries. And Rugoff got uh, convinced Bergman to cut it down to just under four hours for a theatrical version, but that was a, that's kind of a different story because it was Bergman who actually did the cutting. But for Man of to Earth, um, Rugoff was just panicking because he it was the most expensive acquisition that the company had ever made. Um, they he spent a ton of money marketing it initially. The film was not doing well, um, again, either critically or box office or anywhere, any other way. And um, and I, I described in the movie that he had this, uh, you know, this screening up at Dartmouth University that went over. You know, it's like people were walking out in droves and uh, and he just, you know, panicked because he thought he was going to lose all that money. Um, And he hired an editor to come in and it was done in the Cinema 5 office. We had an empty office down the hall from where I was sitting. Um, And he had this editor that was trying to come up with a way of editing the film to make it more comprehensible somehow. Um, And uh, and because the producers of the film were not cooperating, it meant that he had to cut, the, the, the cutting he was doing was actually of the finished cut film. As opposed to going back to the original elements, so it meant that he was limited in terms of what he could actually do it was it had have to be whole scenes coming out as opposed to any sort of finessing and so the final version of the movie that was released um, that was you know kind of Rugoff's version was um, no more comprehensible frankly than the original version, but it had the advantage of just being shorter. So you could get in an extra showtime. Yeah, guess. and then of course it allowed them years later to release the "quote unquote" director's cut, which is which is now what's out there. Um, right. And you know, I don't know if you've looked at that movie, but and you know, I know it has a cult around it. There are a lot of people who really like the movie, but it is not comprehensible. <laughs> no, I, I do I do agree that
0: it. Imp- proves upon viewing. So I think uh, Don Rugoff was right in coming up with his policy to increase viewings, although it's too bad it wasn't, it wasn't the uncut version. Um, it helps to have read the novel that it's based on to really know what's going on.
1: Right, true. Um, and, 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 something, and look, something like 2001 A Space Odyssey is not exactly uh, a narrative either. Um, and, uh, and, and, yes, I, I, have never read the book that that was based on, but I'm told that that's, that's the clue to understanding what the movie's doing. <laughs> I guess so. Well, okay. So you worked from, for
0: Cinema 5 from 1975 to 78, was it? That's, you, you, you
1: nailed it. That's exactly right. I,
0: I picked up watching the film, the amount of, uh, Truffaut and Bergman films that were released by Cinema 5, that, uh, those two filmmakers seemed at least during the seventies to alternate between cinema five and Roger Corman's new world, were they the biggest competitor to cinema five at the
1: time? Yeah. In fact, I, I interviewed Roger Corman for the movie. um, And uh, unfortunately he didn't make it into the film, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, he uh, Roger identified Rugoff as being pretty much his only competition. Uh, And uh, you know, Rugoff was in the game before Roger was. So when Roger came into it, he was outbidding Rugoff for some of those films. Um, and it was, it was very frustrating for Rugoff because he had done a lot of business with those filmmakers early in, earlier on. And then all of a sudden he was losing these movies to Roger. Uh, Roger told me a great story about how um, it was, I think it was Fanny and Alexander, uh, that one of the ways in which he actually convinced Bergman to give him that film, was that uh, he promised him that he was going to play it in drive-ins, and Bergman apparently thought that that was hilarious. And he did. He actually did play <laughs> it in drive-ins. I think that's right. I think it was Cries and Whispers. I mean, you're, you know what? You're right. It was Cries and Whispers. I
0: think by the time Fanny and Alexander came out, he had, Corman had gotten out of the foreign film distribution biz. Um, the uh, Besides the legal battle that you explained very very clearly, it's very clear what what happens in the film, uh with, with the dissolution of cinema five. Uh, can you recall what uh, for you as an employee precipitated those layoffs uh, at the time? Was it just, was it just, you were just watching the legal battle unfold and you knew it was any time or was there a chance that there was one movie
1: that could have been an enormous hit that, that solved everyone's problems? There was always that possibility, but I think that um, there had been a streak of a couple of years where uh, where it just things just weren't working anymore and and you have to to put it in perspective you have to realize that because Rugov had these incredible theaters that were you know so in demand by everybody who wanted to to play films in New York that whenever he played one of his own films in one of his own theaters and that film didn't work it was like a double whammy because not only was he losing money on the film, but he was also losing the opportunity of playing something that might've done better. And so the, his board of directors, um, at one point just, you know, said to him, look, you've got to get out of the distribution business. The theaters could be making tons of money. And Rugoff didn't want to do that. He, he loved being in distribution. And, um, and that was when, uh, you know, when, when the, when the lawsuit finally got settled and, and um, you know, Rugoff was told that he had to, to sell out his share of the company and there were all these machinations going on within the boardroom. And, um, and ultimately the board just basically voted to have him get out of distribution. And that's when I got laid off and a whole bunch of other people got laid off. They kept, in addition to the theaters, they had this library of movies. So they did keep a non-theatrical department going to sort of you know, exploit, the films in the library that that were already acquired. Um, And I believe that there might've been one movie that um, it was a Swedish film, if I'm not mistaken, that Rugoff had already acquired at the time that the distribution department was let go. And so Bill Thompson, who's in the movie, was kept on just to try to squeeze as many dollars as he could out of that movie and, and whatever had been recently released. Um, but he was the only person left in that department at that time. What, what I'm a little bit confused about is, uh, at that point,
0: was Rugoff completely out of the business? Was he removed from the theater ownership part of it
1: too, or no, no, no? Uh, it, it was another. It was a full year later after after the distribution company was kind of made defunct and people were laid off. Rugoff was still in the company running it for another year. Um, still fending off the board and, and others. Um, and, that, and that was when there was a, a transaction that happened where Rukov owed a ton of money. There's a, there's a really intricate backstory that I, I really did want to tell, but unfortunately it was way too complicated to put in the movie. But suffice to say that Rukov was pretty much personally broke. He had not taken a salary in a long time. He owed people a lot of money. And um, several of his board members uh, came to his rescue and bought out his share of the company. And then when things really went haywire, they sold out to foreman. And that was finally the moment when, when he got literally kicked out himself. So that was like a year, approximately a year after he shut down the distribution department.
0: Were the theaters as a whole sold to a larger chain uh, that, that took them all or was uh, it was, was Foreman himself?
1: Yeah. Well, Foreman, the, Foreman already owned, he already owned um, Pacific theaters and Cinerama, right. and uh, there were a couple of other companies, I believe, mostly based on the West coast. And so all he did was he merged it into that company. He called them cinema five theaters. And- yeah. Well, he, he eventually changed the name to city cinemas. Ah, oh, right. OK. And uh, and then the um, uh, you know, it's there's it there's a little bit of history in there that I don't actually know the details of. But suffice to say that the parent company now is called Reading Entertainment and they still own Pacific Theaters. And uh, there's a company called, I think, Continental Amusements and they own Angelica and they own City Cinemas. So it is, okay. a, it is a successor company. It was not like it was sold to some third party. And then they sold the library of films separately. And it was a company called Almi, A-L-M-I, that bought the Cinema 5 library. Right. Um, do you think maybe part
0: of uh, Rugoff's uh, ultimate loss of the business or how he lost the business was that he inherited what was a successful family business and either he didn't respect or got bored with the foundation of that business, which
1: was the fleet of theaters. Um, I just think he was more ambitious than his father was, or, or maybe, that's a, maybe that's not the right way to frame it because um, his father was ambitious and his father was the one who began the growth of the you know, the sort of high-class theaters on the East side. And Rugoff then took that a couple of steps further by opening up Cinema 1 and 2 and taking over a few other theaters as well. But I think that, um, I, I think he was just, he just had a, a large appetite for um, maybe proving himself above and beyond his father. I don't, I don't know. I mean, that's, that gets into an area where I'm psychoanalyzing somebody, which, you know, I, as you can tell from the movie, Rugoff was a complicated character. So it's probably not as simple as the way I'm making it sound. But I, but I do think that he, he was just incredibly ambitious and aggressive um, he, he, wa- he liked being successful. And, um, and the distribution business, to some extent, there's a practicality to getting into distribution when you own theaters because you want to have more control over what's playing. There was a moment in time, fairly early on in Rugoff's tenure, where he had established, you know, taken, taken over from where his father left off and established that he had this chain of these incredibly high class art film theaters. And then the, the Walter Reed organization began to copy what he was doing and established theaters that were nearby to his theaters and took the same kind of um, uh, policies where they were competing for the same films. And Walter Reed had a lot more clout because Walter Reed was a national chain, not just a New York chain. Mm-hmm. So when Rugoff started losing some of those higher class movies that he wanted to play, I think that that was one of the, the moment when he started to think in terms of seriously going into distribution because it would guarantee him that he had a flow of, th- of movies into his theaters. So, um, so you know, there was, there was a practical side of it, but there was also, I think, a, an ego side to it, which I believe is true for anybody who ever gets into the movie business. Yeah, and I think what
0: what you say about him and, and his trying to diversify and, and work distribution into the, into the family business is, speaks to his love of movies to, as well. And, 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 you know, his, his true passion and belief in them as does the fact that, you know, when he went up to Martha's vineyard uh, towards the end of his life, he was doing it again.
1: He was, you know, starting from scratch. His own little way. He was, um, you know, he was doing the exact same thing. Uh,
0: The, uh, one of the things I'm really grateful to the, to the movie for is the reminder and then the actual footage of the, the, Special displays that Rugoff would commission for the uh, release of, of films at his theaters—these uh, dioramas and displays that were created by uh, John Willis, I think, was the artist's name. Um, I, th- I, I was thinking, oh, we, we just don't see that anymore. And and but but and then I was reminded that the uh, the ArcLight in Los Angeles uh, often does uh, fairly elaborate. Uh, Lobby displays, or they put costumes from the films out, and in what is otherwise a a kind of you know a lobby that's identical to most multiplexes, it kind of looks like a big airport. Um, but uh, the auditoriums are wonderful. But but it's nice to have that kind of the the extra added touch of of displays in the lobby. I'm wondering if you if you think though, because we tended to see this more in New York and L.A. theaters, that if it was just the distributors. Uh, and the studios, because these cities were or have been industry hubs, uh, if it was just the studios wanting to outdo or, or impress each other, um, did you know any examples of this spreading to, uh, to outside, outside of uh, those cities, to, to theaters around the country?
1: I think, I think some of the prime theaters in other large cities did stuff like that. Never quite that elaborate, I don't think. Um, but you know, the, the New York and LA theaters are in a special situation because um, there's a certain prestige attached to certain locations in New York and LA. And because all the talent tends to live in New York or LA, it means that they're actually seeing what goes on. Um, and it puts, it gives the theaters a lot of leverage. I mean, you gotta remember that John Willis was working for Brugoff. He wasn't working for the studios. But Rugoff demanded that the studios pay for those displays. And he got away with it because they knew that there was no way they were going to be able to play in those theaters unless they did that. I mean, re- you know, there's certain theaters like um, to this day, the Paris Theater in New York, although that's now owned by Netflix, but um, some of the Lemley Theaters in Los Angeles would require you, if you played a movie there, to buy this plexiglass marquee panel that had the title of the movie on it. And it wasn't hugely expensive, but it was, you know, five or six hundred bucks or whatever. And I think later on it became more expensive. But you could, you were not allowed to play in those, those theaters unless you paid for that marquee panel. So, you know, it's it's a very similar kind of thing. If you have the leverage to be able to um, get the studios or whoever the distributor is to pay for something that's going to make it look more like an event or more like a special thing, then if they can get away with it, they'll do it.
0: And just speaking as a moviegoer visiting those cities, I can say that, you know, just that plexiglass display was an enticement to see the movie. It just made it that much more special, uh, made it seem more exclusive, like, you know, uh, a a special experience beyond just the movie itself. Um, After a few years after you left uh, Cinema 5, you were one of the founders of Cinecom, which was one of the leading uh, independent distributors of the 1980s uh, films, like you mentioned, *Stop Making Sense* and uh, *Merchant Ivory's A Room with a View*, was the at that point in the 80s. It seems to me, from someone who wasn't involved, that the business model, the way you worked at Cinema Five, really hadn't changed that much. That it was really kind of the same, same things going on. What was it? Was it very different
1: uh, it was, 10 years later? I, I, you know, you, you've you hit on something that's, that I find interesting in retrospect, which is that it was not only similar, it was kind of identical because I brought with me everything I had learned from working with Rugoff to this new entity that was, you know, I, I was the only person at Cinecom when we first started the company that had any film business experience whatsoever. My two partners, were both lawyers. Um, they had no idea you know, about any of that stuff. So, so I literally t- took what I learned at Cinema 5 and brought it to Cinecom. The one thing that was perhaps a bit of a, um, a departure, if you will, was simply the fact that in Rugoff's heyday, the movies that we were working on were mainly foreign language films uh, with some documentaries thrown in an occasional English language movie, but mostly it was foreign language films. And um, what you you kind of skipped over was that in between those two companies, I worked at um, UA Classics, which was um, another place where I kind of brought all of Rugoff's ways of doing business into that company. And they also were, or we also, were mostly focused on foreign language films. By the time we started Cinecom, the studios all wanted to have classics divisions and they were bidding up the, the, the rights to foreign language films. They were, we couldn't compete as a smaller independent company. So, you know, whether it was Universal Classics or um, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones, Fox Classics at that time, um, you know, or UA, which was still in, in the game, the, you know, movies would come along, the latest Truffaut or the latest whatever, and they would, they would snap them up at prices that we just couldn't afford. And so we came up with this thought, um, it just happened to be coincident with the first IFP market in New York where um, the New York Film Festival had done a sidebar on, Amer- on this new thing called American independent cinema. And, um, and we went and saw some of those movies and the, the light bulb that lit up over our heads was, okay, this is an area the studios are not doing at the moment. And if we take the same marketing methods that we were using on these foreign language films and think of these American independent films as being in, you know, for that same audience, only they happen to be in English, then, um, then we would have something to ourselves that we wouldn't be competing with the studios. So that was the one thing that, was, that really had changed was that suddenly we were working on these American indie movies, which you know, had just been, been given that title of being an American independent, um, what we didn't know, and which you know, frankly, if Rugoff had still been in business, he probably this would have been what would have saved him, was that in the early years of Cinecom was the was when VHS cassettes started to VHS and Betamax um, became a real cash cow, and the one thing that the, all those home video companies wanted was guess what english language films they had no interest in foreign language films at all and suddenly we were the company with all of the really cool english language films and it made it made uh, the company a success and i do think about that i think about how if Rugoff had managed to hold on for another three or four years that the home video business would have saved him that library think about what it would have been worth sure i remember when
0: the cinema five titles first started coming out on vhs through i think it was um Columbia Home Entertainment, so Columbia Studios yeah. purchased that that catalog, and so, in fact, I still have a, a, a VHS of uh, one sings the other doesn't. Um, but by that point, you know, we're, this is the early '80s, and Rugoff wasn't uh, wasn't with the company.
1: Yeah, that would that would have been Almi that would have been making those sales.
0: Right, the Almi library sold to Columbia, I guess, it was yeah. before Columbia was owned by Coca-Cola, I think. Um, so, and then in the 90s, as you say, the, the, the term American Indie became, uh, became a thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you started working then for Fine Line Features, which was a division of
1: New Line, which at that point, was it all owned by Warner Brothers? Uh, no, there were a number of steps in there. Well, during the time that I worked there, when I first started there, it was, New Line was an independent company. Um, and fineline was a uh, was the specialized division of newline, but while I was working there, newline sold to Turner and then Turner sold to Warner's and then Warner's merged with a o l it was like the big fish and the next bigger fish and the next bigger fish and that all happened during all of those transactions happened while I was working there hmm. did that did that uh
0: Lead to its losing appeal for you in that in that kind of uh, atmosphere, corporate atmosphere.
1: No, I got fired. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I got. I mean, this is this is uh, uh, inevitable. When you're, um, uh, I, I remember having a conversation while I was at Fine Line with um, a friend of mine who uh, had a film, and we were talking about you know the possibility of us picking up the film, and um, and just in, in passing. I said something like, "Well, when I get fired, blah 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 blah." Whatever the conversation was, and he goes, "Are you getting fired?" I said, "No, no, no it's inevitable." It's <laughs> like you know, when you're when you're in that business, you're you're literally trying to guess what you know what's going to work and what isn't going to work, and you know, you the, the, there's question marks about how you know how much money should you spend on acquiring a movie, marketing a movie, et etc. All the same things Rugoff was dealing with back in his day. Um, and, you know, it took them a long time to fire him because he owned the company, at least initially. Whereas in my case, I was an employee. So, you know, we had a, a, a couple of really incredibly good years. And then we had a couple of not so good years um, and uh, and and the Axel. So, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's it's part of the game.
0: Right. And I should point out that, you know, during the good years or at at least from the cinephile standpoint, you released movies like I see the posters behind you, there, hoop dreams and Robert Altman shortcuts and the player, a number of of successful films. Um,
1: So you've proven yourself a survivor. Sorry, please go ahead. No, no. And and by the way, in similar to what we talked about with if you look at the movies that didn't make money, that cost me my job most people now consider them to be classics it's like you know the that's that's just the way the industry works you had a
0: a, a couple seconds clip in the film of an ad for bo Wiederberg's man on the roof which uh i imagine don rugoff picked up for release because of elvira, elvira madigan um uh, elvira madigan had been such a hit for him um and uh, you, you use that as an example of the many films that came out, And I think you said like a year and a half period that just got no attention whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, by the way, that's a really good movie. That's what I was about to say. I just saw it for the first time about a year and a half ago. It's fantastic. It's, it's a movie. I wish we more available right now, but uh, maybe uh, maybe we can get to work on that and <laughs> get it out there again. So you've, you've proven yourself to be a survivor in this, in this world of independent distribution. But you've had a diversified career, uh, publicizing and marketing films, producing. Uh, you're a professor and a teacher. Now you're a, a, a director of a documentary. Besides not having that multifaceted career that you've had, what explains why guys like Rugoff usually burn out after a 10- or 15-year Term at the top. At least that's the way it seems to me. I'm sure there are, you know, uh, exceptions to the rule. Of people who get out a lot quicker, or and, and flame
1: out quicker, or, or or even last a few years longer. Why this cyclical nature? Well, I think you nailed it when you use the word cyclical. I think that um, it's not that we change; it's that the zeitgeist around us changes. There's different. There's moments when. Um, when you as a distributor, marketer, filmmaker are somehow tapped into the, you know, what, I, I don't want to use the word zeitgeist again, but tap, tapped into what audiences seem to want at any given time. And then taste changes. People move on to other things. And, you know, if, if, if you're lucky enough, um, you're able to adapt and kind of go along with it. But I'm a big believer in the fact that the people who are truly successful at this game are not trying to follow the audience. They're trying to lead the audience. And if, when you do try to follow the audience is when you, when you actually you know, flame out. And I think that's a mistake that a lot of people make. And You, know, you, have, to, you have to just be um, secure in your own instincts to know that things swing back around that, you know, how many, how many decades did we go through when everybody said that, you know, there's no way you can make money on a Western or there's no way mo- you can make money on a musical or, you know, whatever, only to have a movie come along that proves that that's not really true. And then suddenly everybody jumps on the bandwagon, right? right. So, so, yeah, I mean, this is a very cyclical business and it always has been. Um, and I think that uh, it explains a lot. In the case of most people, who get fired from jobs or whose businesses flame out in one way or another, um, one, one thing that typically happens is that they, um, and I guess I'm in this category, is that they you know, somehow reinvent themselves, find other things to do, try to you know, you know, maybe move to another side of the business or whatever. But people do have a tendency to have a second act, a third act, a fourth act, you know, whatever. Whereas in Rugoff's case, because of a combination of his um, physical issues um, and because he alienated so many people because of his behavior, um, he, when he got kicked out of the company, nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. So um, it was you know, definitely much more of a, a disappearance than would be normally the case. One of, the, one of your new roles, as I mentioned, is
0: being a director, a filmmaker, yourself, with a project that you completely initiated, started from scratch and, and saw through to its completion and, and now release. How, how did you like it compared to your other jobs? You, do you enjoy
1: this more than anything else? Yes and no. I, um, I mean, I'm really steeped now in trying to figure out the marketing of the movie, because that's, that's what I do. Um, and I really, I, I enjoy that aspect of it. I think there was something um, invigorating about just thinking about the fact that I was making a movie that was based on something that was pr- a pretty personal story for me. Um, and I guess therapeutic also, I was getting it off my chest because I'd been telling stories about Rugoff for so many years. And it had reached the point where people weren't remembering who he was anymore. So I felt like, um, you know, there was an aspect of it that was literally exercising some sort of demon. Um, The process itself, uh, I was nervous about it because I was working with very little resources. Um, I I wasn't ever sure that it would cut together into an actual movie. Um, you know, all I knew was that I was capturing a lot of interviews with people who I was glad I got them on tape because they were getting up in years, and um, you know, and there's already been four people who are in the film who have died. Um, but uh, you know, so so there was an aspect of it that was very gratifying from that perspective too, was that I was capturing a bit of history before it disappeared. But the fact that it cut together, I think the happiest moment in my life that's probably an exaggeration, but one of the happiest moments in my life was the first time I saw a cut of the movie strung from beginning to end. And I was, I like it was over and I was like, it's a movie. <laughs> it's like, it's actually a movie. Now it changed a lot from that first cut to what what you're seeing. Um, there were many, many cuts in between uh, and the editing process was done over the course of more than a year. But um, uh, But the truth is it was... It was a little nerve wracking, uh, you know, I, again, I just had no idea whether it was ever going to add up. I'm, I'm grateful to it,
0: the movie for a number of reasons. Uh, one for this document of this era of uh, American film exhibition, the portrait of Don Rugoff, which is um, really uh, generous and, and well-fleshed out and, and, and fascinating. Um, but two, two technique things I'm, I'm really grateful for. Uh, one is, um, I guess bigger than the other, which is that, uh, even though you have the allusion to searching for sugar man in the title, that it's not about, uh, um, you, um, coming across some kind of. Devastating news that you have to hide from the audience, uh, in, in you know, in ways that might not make us uh, trust you as a storyteller. The other, uh, along the same lines, which which immediately uh, allowed me to put my trust in you, is that you do something that very few filmmakers do when they're telling a personal story or a story that at least the, where they were involved, which is you. You talk to the camera and directly address it as if you're the filmmaker. And I've seen so many documentaries now where the directors are the subjects and they're, they're being interviewed in the film and talking off camera as if someone's interviewing them. And I immediately say, well, aren't they the ones telling the story? Aren't they the ones who should be looking at the camera and talking to us and not ask, answering somebody else's questions? You know, shouldn't they be asking the questions and
1: answering them at the same time? And I thank you for that. Yeah, well, thank, thank you for feeling that way. I, I, um, I wasn't sure until very late in the game that I was actually going to be in the film. Um, I always knew it was a possibility, and part of it was because some of the people who I was interviewing were, you know, up there in years to the point where they were not remembering things in a great deal of detail the way that I had hoped, um, and where I got the basic story out of them, but I knew that the detail was kind of missing. And so, you know, I, I had the benefit of being one of the youngest people who worked for Rugoff before he combusted. (laughs) And, um, and, and so, which by the way, is no guarantee of anything, but at least when I did that interview, I feel like I still had some of my marbles. Um, And, uh, and by the way, who knows, I might be misremembering some stuff, but uh, who's going to challenge me? (laughs) A couple of last
0: questions. One is uh, before you worked for Don Rugoff, you, I guess spearheaded the Midwest distribution of
1: John Cassavetes' *A Woman Under the Influence*. That's a little bit of an exaggeration. I I um, I was a student at Northwestern at the time. Um, I was running what's called the A and O board, which is activities and organizations. Um, and under the umbrella of the A and O board, we used to do a lot of film screenings and events and things like that. And um, and so what I did was working with Cassavetti's office, I, um, I did a, a big premiere of a woman under the influence at Northwestern in a 600 seat auditorium, which we sold out. Um, and it was, uh, John Cassavetti's was there. Jenna Rollins was there. Peter Falk was there. Um, I moderated a Q and a with them at the end, which was an enormous thrill for somebody my age. Um, and they called it the Midwest premiere of the film because it was the first time it played anywhere in the Midwest. It opened in theaters like three weeks later, but um, the, uh, you know, it was my first taste of working um, with professionals as opposed to, you know, just booking a film from Swank or films incorporated and, you know, putting up posters on campus where we were doing something more ambitious than that. Um, And not to mention the fact that Khan Auditorium, which is where the, the screening took place was a big auditorium, and to you know fill it up was definitely going to be a, um, a challenge. And I, I point to that experience as being the moment when I when I kind of internalized how difficult it is to get people to get butts in seats, you know, and that it never gets easier. It's like when when I hear people complaining now about. Um, you know the theatrical film business. Forgetting about what's going on with COVID right now, but prior to COVID, lots of complaints about how hard it is to get people to go to the movies, and Netflix is causing us problems. And you know everybody's used to watching things at home, and blah blah blah. And it's like, well, no, no, you don't understand. It was never easy. It was never easy. Maybe, maybe before television was invented, it was easy. Well, that leads right into my, my last
0: question, which is, you um, you published a, a short piece on IndieWire this summer. Uh, that talked about uh, what's been going on with virtual distribution and, and, and programming. We At the Cinematheque, we've been offering uh, a, a program or a film or two every week for free. We have a different model, but um, you talked about how when this began after the, after the pandemic began and things started to shut down, how it was uh, initially a mess because every every distribution company and every theater was working with what seemed to be like a different model. And in this piece, you laid out, I think, a seven-point plan with suggestions for how to get it right and how both theaters and distributors can, can benefit. Have you? It was published on July 1st, and I'm wondering if you've seen uh, anything, any of your suggestions being implemented and taken to heart and, and things you've written about actually
1: Coming to fruition uh, in the days since. Some some of the platforms that are being used, and some of the distributors that are using those platforms, um, have added some of the capabilities that I uh, recommended. Um, nobody has done everything, and I, you know, it's it's clear to me why nobody has done it. It has more to do with um, things that are systemic within the relationship among filmmakers, distributors, and exhibitors that um, are hard to really explain because they're, it's, so much of it is built on um, the customary ways in which people do business. And I think that the—you um, know, one of the things I was pointing at is a larger issue that has less to do with COVID and, 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 and less to do with virtual cinema than it does with these systemic issues that have existed for a long time I think the business model of theatrical movie going needs to be looked at really carefully because so much of it is left over from an era when um, the business just wasn't the same as it is now. And um, you know, so, so nobody's really gone all the way with it. Um, there is one exhibitor um, in Salt Lake City who has built their own platform and who's been trying to sell it to sell its use, I should say, to, um, to other theaters. And it seems to be, I don't, I'm not sure it's really catching on per se, but I think that they're make they're, they're, um, getting some traction and that one is probably the closest to what I was advocating of all the platforms that are out there. Um, and I haven't been following things quite so closely lately to know, because I, I contacted them to give them suggestions about how to go to the next step, but um, I don't know what they've implemented and what they haven't. But, um, but I think that there's a general feeling that there's a need for something along the lines of what I proposed, and, um, and we'll see. I mean, I'm, you know, I, don't, I don't have a stake in it other than as a, 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 as a viewer and then as a filmmaker, um, you know, like I, I don't have any kind of real agenda other than saying to people, get it right, you know, just get it right.
0: Yeah, make it as easy and, and as uh, on the both on everybody, the consumer, the, the viewers, the the exhibitors, and the and the distributors. It should be um, it should be fair and, as you say, right. So, well, thanks for joining us today. I appreciate uh, you taking the time to talk with us about your film. Thank you, Ira. Thank you. Uh, it was a pleasure.